Hey, I'm Emory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 8 Chapter 15 The investigation team meets for the first time that evening. I'm excited and energized, in part because I feel like I won round one against Fallon March and the company, and in part because I'm so tired of the enforced inactivity of medical leave I could scream. I'm increasingly buoyed as each member comes into my pod's common room. When everyone is assembled, there are eight people present. Graham, whom I consider a de facto member, was invited as well, but of course begged off as too busy to attend. At least he sent along with his regrets several bottles of high-quality brew that I'm more than happy to crack open. I was concerned that the atmosphere would be heavy and sad, but my own enthusiasm has proven contagious, and everyone seems invigorated. We start by writing our own three-part charge, to understand the exact cause of the explosion, to pinpoint all responsible mechanisms, parties, and practices, and to issue recommendations for Ionian and company action as appropriate, whether changes in policies or disciplinary action against individuals or departments found to be at fault. The team members are all people I know well, respect, and trust implicitly. They'll do whatever task I assign them. The group includes some who had direct experience with the explosion, others who as part of their roles on Iona have access to meaningful evidence, reports, and information, and others who are simply strong team players and good for the balance of the group. Our first objective is determining whether the explosion was accidental or a deliberate act. The natural inclination of Ionians has been to think of this as a terrible accident, but with what we know about Bartizel's difficult history and the company's involvement in it, compounded by our own experience with Blue, Graham's rising prominence on Iona, and the arrival of Arden, we have to admit that other scenarios are possible. No one knows that better than Arden and me. The group plans some initial inquiries and schedules a second meeting two evenings hence, then almost everyone heads home to their pods for the night. Even though it's late, a few team members from my own pod, plus Fanny, linger around our communal table sipping brew and nibbling on the remains of some excellent pepper cheese bread Hen left out for us. That's a hell of a task we set for ourselves, Fanny says, gesturing toward me with her flask. Do we really want to know the answers? I wish I could say it wasn't even a question, I respond sadly. From your perspective as Polly's sister, or from Macha's perspective as someone trying to provide care to the injured, it might not matter. The end result is the preoccupying thing. But it's a concern moving forward. If Iona was targeted, if an Ionian was targeted, it's imperative that we find out by whom and why. Fanny scowls, drinks again from her flask, and hands it around the table. If we find out someone was trying to hurt my brother, it's definitely going to matter to me because I'll be making that someone pay. But who would want to hurt Polly? asks Winda, taking a deep drink from the proffered flask, then passing it back to its owner. That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't, Arden agrees. In fact, I think if we determine this was a malicious act, it's unlikely Polly was the target. He probably just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Who would be the target, then? Mabry asks. Are we looking for someone whose goal was to make Iona look bad? Possibly, Arden says. But if it's not a shot against Iona as a whole, the only potential targets that make any sense are Graham Thorne or me. What about us makes sense? The new voice at the doorway is so sudden it makes me jump. Arden is all smiles and stands with his hand extended as Graham comes into the room. The two men clasp hands like the old friends they say they are. Afterwards, Graham bends down with a hug for me and a smile and a wave to the others gathered there. His demeanor seems lighter tonight, with a little more of the old Graham on display, although whether genuine or contrived, I can't determine. 
Only Fanny refuses to respond to his greeting and instead slams her flask down on the table as she stands and says, I'll be going now. Oh, Fanny, don't go on my account, Graham says, trying to land the comment somewhere between friendly teasing and a true entreaty. It's not enough. Not at all. I find I'm quite tired, Fanny snarls without any hint of tiredness in her voice. Good night, friends. Good night, governor. With that, she stomps out into the courtyard. I can't just let her go this way and hurry after her. Let me walk you out, I call. I'm sorry, she says as I catch up with her at the edge of the courtyard. I can't be around him for longer than five minutes. I don't mind if you leave, but we were talking about something important, I point out. And Graham is part of the team. I don't want to be critical, but you have to stop giving your emotional backlash priority over everything else. It's not helping anyone, and it's especially not helping Polly. At this point, Fanny's demeanor begins to crack, and she looks back inside the pod, where Graham is having an energetic conversation with Arden. I don't know why I feel like it's his fault, she says, shaking her head. I know it's illogical and wrong-headed. I know Graham did nothing to cause this. He didn't come here to replace Polly. He didn't want to be pod leader or operations coordinator or have this angry iceberg woman from the company stay with us. I know that, but I just can't look at him without thinking about what a different place Iona was before the Bartizellians came. It feels like one day Iona was happy, and the next day it was dangerous. It's not dangerous, I say, even though I'm not altogether sure about that myself, given my run-in with Fallon March. Wenda has some wonderful plans for Iona. She can envision a time soon when people will be proudly proclaiming they're from Iona. From here! Can you imagine? Won't that be grand? Fanny looks at me with a half-smiling, half-sad expression. That will be grand, she says. I hope I get to see it. But darling Faith, be careful. Maybe I'm jumping at shadows, but I do think Iona has become a dangerous place, and I can't shake the feeling it has something to do with him. She looks back toward our common room one more time, then shakes her head as though trying to clear demons from her vision. She hugs me again and kisses my cheek before climbing aboard her sand scooter and whirring away into the dark without another word. The somber mood of our exchange is in direct contrast to the energy of the common room that greets me when I return. Arden and Graham, deep into an entertaining story from their old days together in the black, have everyone laughing. A few of my podmates who had not yet turned in for the night have joined in as well, and Hen is clattering around the kitchen getting more snacks for everyone. There's a feeling of comfort in the air. It's pleasant to see so many people I care about looking relaxed, even if it's just for a moment. I stand in the doorway watching, trying to memorize it all. Arden's laughter, Graham's smile, the way Wenda and Mabry lean into each other and whisper as if passing secrets back and forth. Hen's cheerful whistle as he works in the kitchen, Char's sweet voice breaking into song, Darrow teasing Holly, and Holly's flirty response. My pod. My friends. My found family. I think how important each one of them is to me, and with a start, I remember someone, somewhere, wants to wreck the beauty I've found here. I won't let you do that, I think. I don't care who you are. I'll stop you if it's the last thing I do. The next morning, I wake up to a hail from Fallon March. I understand I'm supposed to be working with you, she says, sounding only slightly less frosty than she did the previous day. Would you be available for a meeting this morning? I'm glad she can't see the expression on my face. Will there be firearms? I ask. No, she says. I hear her fingernails pounding on the desktop in the background. In that case, I think a meeting would be appropriate, I say. Here in our common room in an hour, it's pod C1419. If you don't have a map, Graham can tell you where it is. I log out of the channel before she can respond. 
I'm a little concerned I'm being too hard on her, but fortunately, the feeling passes quickly. I spend only a fraction of the next hour getting ready. I'm done with trying to match her level of formality and style. My hair goes into its standard messy bun. My hands look like they always look, mostly clean, but like hands of a girl who uses them for difficult, dirty work, like wrenching fuel couplings into submission and ripping apart circuit boards. I'm me today. It's more than enough. Predictably, March is late and arrives a full 15 minutes past the hour. She's wearing another crisp jumpsuit, this one a neatly tailored linen number and a tasteful cream color that matches her white blonde hair and skin. Her only concessions to her surroundings are a pair of enormous round glare-cutting sunglasses, completely unnecessary given Iona's anemic sunlight, and flat, sturdy shoes. I think about her trying to navigate Iona in anything approaching heels and almost laugh aloud. So this is where you live, she says, coming into our common room and peeling off her sunglasses to look around. Yes, I answer. It's exactly like where you live, for the moment, anyway. At this, she merely shrugs. We're meeting in here. There's no special room. We're meeting in here, I confirm. Have a seat. She looks around again as if conflicted, but sits down, finally, at the long communal table. Would you like something to drink? Coffee? Water? I ask. Her face registers mild surprise. Water, thank you, she says. I step into the kitchen and draw a large pitcher of cool water and grab glasses for both of us. I think Hen left us some muffins if you would like one, I say, putting the glasses down on the table and filling them. Just water for now, she says, drinking thirstily. I'm not used to how dry it is here. We hear that a lot, I say. At first I thought I'd never adjust, but I did. It takes a while. We sit in silence for a moment. Finally, March says, I suppose we need to get on with it. Sure, I say. You requested the meeting, so let's go with your agenda first. Her brow creases a bit, and she takes another sip of water, then sets the glass down on the table and folds her hands in her lap. I had a talk with Gov... uh, Graham, she says. He was not terribly pleased with our first interaction. Nor was I, I laugh. Instead of diffusing the tension, my humor makes her visibly more anxious. Her hands move to the table in a tight clasp, and she frowns. No, she says. I'm aware. And you asked to meet why? I, uh, thought I should suggest some parameters for your investigation. I worked with the company long enough to know what that word means, and I'm less than pleased by it. You mean you want to set some limitations on the work we plan to do? Well, no, not limitations per se. Parameters. Specific parameters? Yes. Limitations. I take a long drink from my glass of water, never taking my eyes off her. I wouldn't say that. It's important to make sure that there is an appropriate focus and that time-sensitive methodologies are used, March begins. Limitations, I interrupt her, setting my glass down on the table sharply. First, you assumed you'd be able to tamp down this investigation by blowing us off, but that didn't work. Then, you thought you'd just be uncooperative, but you learned the hard way that Graham isn't going to just go along for that ride. Now you're worried you may have connections above your pay grade. So your next gambit is to get involved and try to control what we do by pretending to help us focus. Am I right? March throws up her hands in frustration. I'm not here to make you happy, she says, powerfully irritated now. I'm here to do a job. And what job is that exactly? Because it seems the job we were told you were coming here to do is being done by us, but only if we can get around your parameters. Doesn't that sum it up? March's mouth draws into a thin, hard line, and the fingernails of her right hand began tapping out a harsh, angry rhythm. I don't know what you want from me, she says flatly. I want you to actually help with the investigation. It's as simple as that. What do you mean by help? I smile. This is exactly the question I wanted her to ask. 
I've learned you have access to some records that would be very useful for us to see. Don't worry, they aren't classified or anything of that nature. They're just difficult for lay people to come by. If you could procure that information for us, that would be quite helpful. March looks at me suspiciously. What records are you talking about? It just so happens I have a list, I say, picking up my Hola tablet from the table and tapping a few commands on its screen. A neatly formatted, extremely long document takes shape and hovers in midair between us. I tap it and send it flying to her Hola tablet with a single touch. Let's review, shall we? We talk for another hour. To be accurate, I talk, and March either listens or occasionally makes an annoyed or put-upon grunt. I try to be pleasant but stop well short of friendly, which seems to be the most comfortable approach. By the time she puts on her ridiculous sunglasses and departs, she has agreed to gather most of the information on my lengthy list. I'm smiling as I hail into Arden's private channel. His medical leave has ended, and he's doing some warehouse record-keeping work in the temporary office at Goods, alongside Graham, who was kicked out of Polly's office when March arrived. When he answers, I simply say, It worked. Let Graham know. Good job, he responds with a chuckle. You'd make a great space pirate. I laugh out loud. Subterfuge is not usually my thing, but in this case, I'll take it. I learned from the best, I say. You did indeed, Arden says with pride. As for me, I can't believe this plan worked. It was concocted by Graham, Arden, and me after Fanny's departure, and set in motion well after all the rest of the pod had succumbed to exhaustion. I don't know what was said, only that Arden and Graham talked well into the night, and I woke up to Arden telling me that Graham was committed to our cause. The basic strategy we decided to employ was simply to create a series of high-level distractions for Fallon March. Just one dramatically acted conversation with Graham put the plan into motion, although we all had roles to play. Arden's assessment that she was too hyper-responsible to ignore such a seriously framed request, and too insecure in her position to risk Graham contacting some of the high-level names he bombed her with, was spot on. Truthfully, some of the information on the list I passed to March this morning will be quite useful if she manages to deliver it, and some of it we could never gather on our own, but for now we're happy enough to have her out of our way. When the team meets the next evening, Mabry takes the lead. The material samples security collected have been sent to a lab for analysis, so we may have lost control of those forever, but I do have a copy of our original report, she says. I summarize for everyone, and if you check your holos, you'll find it's been sent for your eyes only. Which lab got the samples? asks Arden. I might have some pull, depending. Unclear, Mabry says with a frown. There are six labs listed on our outgoing manifest. It might be any of them, or even all of them. We followed company protocol and sent the samples to a centralized disbursement department. They would have taken care of the rest. Disbursement on Homeworld? Arden looks puzzled. They must have changed protocol then. The department is marked as a Homeworld base, but it's located on an orbital rather than on the planet itself, Mabry clarifies. Safer, apparently. Wouldn't want to accidentally expose all those Homeworlders to some unknown pathogen. Arden and I exchange looks across the table. Mabry continues consulting the data on her holo tablet. There wasn't much left that was large enough to yield any helpful clues from rudimentary inspection, she adds. Most of the debris was quite small, and our largest sample remained stuck in patient two until clinical was able to extract and preserve it for us, which took several hours. We all wince a bit. Wenda wraps an arm around Fanny, who is holding up well but looking a little ashen just now. Mabry looks stricken and whispers, Sorry. Fanny waves her off. It's all right, she says. We all know what happened. No sense in trying to make it less awful than it really was. The one thing we did figure out very quickly was the container that exploded initially, the one that resulted in the injuries and was the precursor to the second larger explosion that caused the more extensive damage, was sent to Iona by the company via a company skiff. But it wasn't from a department or a specific individual. It was listed as being from a dummy address that's only used for generic purposes. At this, something begins gnawing in the back of my mind. 
How did you source that information? I ask. We've all known that the implicated package came from the company, but this is the first time we've talked about its specific origin. There wasn't enough left of the crate to pull up the details, but the sample that was stuck in, uh, I mean, our largest debris sample, um, turned out to have a portion of the inventory number imprinted on it. We were able to find a match on the incoming cargo manifest. What did they claim was in the crate? asked Fanny. Maybe that could give us some clues as to its original sender. There's no information on its contents, Mabry replies. The manifest notes that the content details portion of the shipping tag was left blank. Arden is reading the security team report for himself as she talks and lets out a low whistle. If this is correct, this thing showed up long before I got here, he says. It's correct, Mabry confirms. Several people working intake at warehousing remember it coming in, and also remember Polly commenting about the fact that it was addressed to warehousing leader when Iona didn't have a warehousing leader. So we know we have the right crate. It was addressed to the warehousing leader, repeats Window, wide-eyed. It sounds like it may have been meant for you after all, Arden. If these dates are accurate, I hadn't even been assigned the position yet, Arden says, looking puzzled. The memory of that day on the pad filters back into my awareness. The skiff pilot and our conversation about the impending arrival of some over-emotional former star jockey to take over as Iona's warehousing chief. You might not have known you were coming here, but someone did, I say, and relate the information the pilot shared with us. Wyndham might be right. What happened to Polly may have been meant for you. But how could anyone assume that this crate would be left alone for this unnamed warehousing leader to arrive and open it, asked Fanny. If it was meant for Arden and the sender knew he would be coming here, wouldn't it make more sense to have it addressed to him by name? Addressed to him by name. I gasp, going cold with sudden recall. There's a second crate here, I say, my voice cracking. There's another crate just like that one here on Iona. It came in at the same time. What are you talking about? Arden asks, a note of urgency creeping into his voice. I remember it. There were two crates on that skiff. Both were from that weird generic company address with no details in the contents field, I recount. Polly and I unloaded them and checked them in. One was addressed to Iona Warehousing Leader, no name attached. But the second crate was addressed specifically to a person by name. It, it was addressed to me. The room goes silent. Arden reaches across the table and places his hand over mine, squeezing it hard, looking into my eyes, his face a mask of alarm. I realize I'm shaking. Dear gods, whispers Winda, and I lean into her. What happened to it? Arden asks. He's trying to stay calm, but his anxiety is evident in his voice. It reminds me of his tone all those nights long ago when we were trying so hard to fight the waning. I sent it to my personal storage and forgot all about it, I say. I never touched it again. It's still there. Does anyone else know about that crate? He asks gently. Did you tell anyone else about it or show it to anyone? Polly knew about it because we were working the delivery together, but no one else, I say, thinking hard. He entered it onto the intake manifest, and I sent it to personal storage, and that was it. Could someone else learn about it other than from you or from Polly? Arden asks. I don't really know where he's going with this, but clearly his brain is connecting dots. His tone is somewhere between anxiety and barely contained excitement. I think about my response carefully. It's on the intake manifest, so I suppose anyone who cared to go through those records one by one might find it, I say. Graham has been complaining about March pestering him for access to all our cargo manifests, both incoming and outgoing, Fanny adds. Polly used an audit system that no one else can quite make heads or tail of, so he's having difficulty pulling the exact one she wants, but she's being very specific. Even if she has the manifest, 
That was one shipment of a dozen that week, and there were hundreds of items that came in, I say. It wouldn't be obvious to someone just reading through the manifest. Unless you knew what you were looking for, Wenda points out. Who would know what to look for? Only Polly and I even know it was here. The person who sent it would know, Mabry says, or someone working for them. Silence again. We all trade anxious looks. Arden breaks the nervous quiet. Is your storage space secure, he asks. I shake my head. You need generic credentials to get into the Warren, but beyond that, no, I say. I never bothered with additional security. Then let's get over there and see what we can do about that, he says. Chapter 16 The specter of eight people traipsing over to the storage warren in the middle of the night might draw more attention than we want, so Arden and I set out alone. Mabry will join us after she pays a visit to the security office and picks up some potentially useful items. Just in case anyone might see our silhouettes in the darkness, we try to look like we're a couple out for a romantic stroll, holding hands as we walk and chatting casually, looking at the stars. Arden offers a running commentary that keeps a smile on my face and some of my anxiety at bay, at least for now. Here we are, just two young people out for a little walk, perplexingly late in the evening for that sort of thing, but perhaps reasonable if one is hoping for a romantic tryst, he says in my ear, and I giggle. All right, maybe not young. Two not young, not old people enjoying the brisk night air and the astonishing amount of grit that hits your face if you happen to look in the wrong direction. But it's fine. Here on beautiful Iona, the sand tastes like sugar and feels like a soothing ointment in your eyes. It is truly a lovely night, I say, wrapping my arm around his waist in continued pantomime. The 15-mile-an-hour headwind keeps the blood bugs at bay, and the natural sand exfoliant gives our skin a youthful glow. That's a fact, he says. I'm often told I don't look a day over 80. I credit the sands of Iona. We could probably bottle the stuff and sell it. All the old high-society homeworlders would be buying it up by the skiff load. Despite our dawdling pace, we reach the storage warren well ahead of Maybury. I use my credentials to open the door and set the lights to 40%, given that dim lights are less likely to draw attention if anyone else is out and about or looking in our general direction. Let's wait for Mabry in the share, I suggest, and we walk down the dimly lit central hallway together. The names on each locker or doorway glow in the pale light. I flinch a little when the name Carlo Ardival catches my attention as we pass. The share space is remarkably neat and clutter-free. Wenda passed the job of managing personal storage and maintaining the share over to Quimby while I was stuck in clinical, and I'm impressed with his organizational skills. Every box has been emptied out into a series of precisely labeled white bins, and all the packing debris that had covered the floor has been sorted and bundled for recycling. The mini flats are lined up neatly along the far wall. They're all gleaming and look recently cleaned and serviced. Wow, this is so much better, I murmur. I think I've only been in here twice, Arden admits. What was it like before? It was like I was in charge of it, I say wryly. You remember my housekeeping skills. True, but you had other redeeming qualities. I toss Arden a sign long look. He's smirking. My brilliant mind, my sense of humor, my elegant singing voice, I ask. As I said, many. The smirk is growing. I'm searching desperately for a wicked comeback when I hear the front portal slide open and Mabry's voice shout, Hello? We're in the share, I call out. The sound of her footsteps and the whir of a hover flat are amplified as she comes down the hallway toward us. I have a lot of equipment, she says, emerging into the share. Which one is your storage? Number eight on the central left passage. Oh, one of the big ones. Well, that'll make it easier. Arden looks at me quizzically as we start down one of the five hallways radiating out from the share. Big ones? What have you got in there? The bodies of your enemies? I laugh. <laughs> Definitely not. I haven't had enough enemies to fill up a cubby. 
I was working on a project to help me learn the ropes for maintenance and needed the space. I don't have any use for it anymore. I just never downsized. At the door to number eight, Mabry waves her credentials in front of the entry panel and the door slides open with a whisper. Arden shakes his head. Too easy, he says. We have to change that. We will, right now, says Mabry. She's pulled out her holo tablet and is making some setting adjustments. You'll need to confirm this, she says, handing over the holo to me. I enter the necessary information and let it do a quick retina scan. The door chimes pleasantly three times to signify a successful change. We've got it set now that only your credentials will open this door, she says. It's a start, says Arden, and Mabry nods. There are a couple more steps I'd like to implement, she says, but first, let's take a look at that crate. Inside, number eight is cool, dark, and nearly empty. Our footsteps echo as the three of us enter. I voice command the lights up to a dim glow. Try closing the door, Mabry suggests, making a few additional adjustments on our holo. The door slides shut without hesitation as soon as I give the command. Arden, now you try the voice command to open the door. Number eight open, he says. The door slides open again. Is that intentional, he asks, peering at the door. Yes, says Mabry. That's what we want. Whenever a door is set that only one person can open it from the outside, it's important for anyone inside to be able to open it. That way there's no risk of someone getting trapped. Has that happened? Arden looks at the door again, seeming mildly alarmed. No, because the system works, Mabry says with confidence. Besides, people are in and out of here all the time. Anyone who got stuck would be found in a matter of hours. Can we set the door so that Arden can open it from the outside, I ask? I would like to have a failsafe. Of course, Mabry says. She makes the adjustments and passes the holo to Arden for his retina scan. The silence of the facility is nearly overwhelming. When the environmental control system cuts on, we all jump. Good grief, Arden mutters. Bring those lights up a little higher. Number eight, close. The door slides shut with a satisfying thump, and I bring the lights up to 80%. It dispels the gloom, but highlights the metal and plexi crate sitting conspicuously against the far wall. I feel like I'm lying in bed with a bomb. We approach it carefully, the only sound, the whir of the hover flat tracking behind Mabry. Let's check the data, says Mabry, bringing her holo up and activating the scan. The short, sharp chirp it makes when the data is obtained makes us all jump again. Arden curses and runs his hand through his hair. We can all see the information floating over the crate, but we're still too far away to read it. In almost comical unison, we all take one more big step toward the crate, squinting at the display. Bath mats? Arden reads aloud in a puzzled voice. I can't help but laugh. <laughs> Polly must have written that in, I say. He asked me what bite might be in it, and I had no idea. I said it was probably new bath mats or something. There was originally nothing on the manifest under contents. Yeah, that notation does have Polly's auth number, says Mabry. I think we can safely rule out the possibility that it does contain bath mats, right? I mean, it weighs 195 pounds. We all chuckle, and the tension diffuses just a bit. It does look exactly like the crate that blew in the warehouse, if I'm remembering right, Arden says. But that just means it looks like every company crate out there. They're all pretty much the same. It's similar based on the description, and the sending address is the same generic one we saw on the manifest of the warehouse crate, says Mabry. But if the information we have is correct, there are a few significant differences. Weight, for example. The interior lining is listed as a different material for another. And there appears to be an enviro incorporated into this one, although the settings are so low it's almost non-functional. I wonder what the point of that would be, Arden mutters. No idea, says Mabry. There's a full procedure manual on different types and styles of company shipping containers and their general uses. That's one of the things we've sent Fallon March after. If she gets it for us, it might be a good clue as to what's in it. Do they make special crates to contain explosive devices? I ask, only half-joking. Actually, they do, Arden says, but they're supposed to contain any accidental detonation, and that didn't happen in the warehouse. Personally, I think we have to assume it wasn't a malfunction, 
It was supposed to explode and do damage. In my mind, I see Bennett, Arden, and Polly all battered and bleeding on the warehouse floor and shudder. Is there any indication of what might have made the first crate blow, I ask? A timing device? Some other environmental factor we should control for? We only have anecdotal evidence, Mabry says, finally taking her eyes off her holo and looking skeptically at the crate in front of us. Our eyewitnesses suggest the explosion happened only after Polly started actively attempting to open the crate. The electronics appeared to have been damaged, and the crate wouldn't open normally, so he was using a pry bar to try to get the lid up. I wince. Everyone knows forcing malfunctioning electronics, especially company electronics, is not a good idea. They're often double-secured, which basically turns them into booby traps. I rub my face with my hands in dismay. So the explosion itself might have just been a double-secured doing its job, made particularly problematic by the contents, I say. Damn it, Polly, we told you a thousand times. Why was it so important to get into that crate? Arden hangs his head. I ask him to open it, he says, so I guess that would be my fault. And the person or entity that sent a crate booby-trapped with an irreversible stasis-causing drug to our facility with no documentation and no way to determine who might open it would be utterly blameless, I say, scowling at him. Perspective, please. Those double secures are always highlighted on the manifest, Mabry adds. Nothing suggests it was double secured. <sighs> I tried to open it myself, but as you said, the electronics appear to be jammed, Arden says, his voice echoing eerily off the bare industrial walls. Bennett had some questions about our sorting system, so I walked over to help him out and asked Polly if he could work on it. I didn't expect him to try to pry the lid off. We look at each other in silence for a moment. We'll just leave this crate closed for now until we can figure out more about it, Mabry says. In the meantime, I brought some monitoring devices. They'll take continuous measurements. Maybe they'll give us a better idea of what's inside. Once we've ruled out a few things, we might be able to use a resonance scanner on it and produce a visual, but we need to make sure the scan won't make it blow. We'll have to open it at some point, I say. It's the best lead we've got. Chapter 19 it takes Mabry half an hour or so to set up the monitors and code the system so any of the three of us can read their data. She also puts in place a device that will inform us all if via headset should anyone try to communicate electronically with the crate, whether to open, track, move, or pull any data from it. While Mabry works, Arden and I gather up the small collection of my personal belongings that occupy a corner of the large room and pile them onto another hover flat, which we then send to Arden's assigned locker. The suspicious crate now has the room all to itself, and there's no reason for anyone, not even me, to come inside. We follow the same gambit departing from the storage warren as we did arriving. Mabry departs first, heading off towards security, and 15 minutes later Arden and I follow. The breeze has calmed a bit, and the temperature drops significantly. I hug myself and shiver, pulling my thin cotton work shirt tighter around me as we walk. Arden notices and gallantly pulls off his jacket, draping it around my shoulders. It's a goofy, old-fashioned gesture, but I'm grateful nonetheless. I slip my arms into the sleeves and grin. Now that's sure to make anyone watching believe we're out on a date, I tease. Arden reciprocates by draping his arm around my shoulders. He lowers his voice as if he's telling me a secret. How do people hook up here, he asks, gesturing furtively with his free hand. Do they actually do it in the storage warrens? There's no privacy whatsoever in the pods, and I'm guessing you can't do anything outside without the literally painful addition of sand. <laughs> oh, people manage, I say. Storage war interests aren't unheard of, and believe it or not, the Presentation Theater seems to be a popular spot. And there are a few secret places scattered around that I've heard stories about. You'll have to see the Star Parlor. That's where Graham and I... I hear myself and freeze. 
Oh, no, I didn't mean we didn't. But Arden just laughs. You and Graham, huh? I wondered. He does look at you that way from time to time, and there seems to be a certain physical familiarity between the two of you. No, not like that, I say flustered now. We weren't, we aren't, we only. Why are you even trying to explain this to me? Arden interrupts gently, looking at me with a bemused expression. It's not any of my business. It's perfectly all right if you've been with someone. That's what I would expect after all this time. I don't quite know what to say. Of all the responses in all the worlds, this is the most obviously appropriate one. Yet it's the one I least expected. I just thought you might be upset, I say, knowing it's silly even as it comes out of my mouth. I'm completely aware, you know, that I chose to leave all those years ago, with the best intentions, of course, but I still made that choice, he responds. I understood one of the consequences was that you were going to be with someone else. I didn't love the idea of you moving on and forgetting about me, but there was nothing I could do about it. I hope you understand. I always just wanted you to be happy. There are so many places this conversation could go, so many questions begging to be asked, secrets revealed, declarations made. But the part of my personality that once made Polly dub me Carefulina is far stronger now than the impetuous, impulsive girl who lived in that golden bubble of love with Arden Wilson and thought it would last forever. We have other concerns now, more immediate things that must be dealt with, and it doesn't feel right to go chasing the shadows of our personal relationship. Yet some response seems called for. We walk in silence for a moment before I give him an affectionate peck on the cheek and say, I wanted you to be happy too. I hope you were. Arden's expression is hard to read. I see nostalgia, angst, pleasure, and a tinge of regret all play across his features. I'm happy now, he says, after a thoughtful pause. I smile at him and say, me too. The pod is quiet and dark by the time we return. Lights out happened more than an hour ago, and our podmates are all sleeping peacefully. Mabry walks in a few moments after we come into the common room. We say our good nights. We'll have some good information by tomorrow, I hope, she says, and gives us an encouraging thumbs up. I hope so, too, I say, bidding both Mabry and Arden good night, and I walk down the hall to my room. Inside, it's cool and quiet. The window is open a little to let fresh air in. I find the click of the door closing behind me strangely satisfying. As I pull off my clothes and stretch out in my hammock, I'm struck by the sound of Iona's sand. It whispers like a low, soft song as the grains tumble over one another. If I tilt my head exactly right, it sounds almost like the oceans of home world dancing along the shore. There's a particular rhythm to the sound coming through my window, and I close my eyes and let myself see the ocean, bright blue and green, fringed by the silky white sand of home world. Even the sand on Iona is more utilitarian and less flashy, beige and coarse and crunchy underfoot, but it has its own beauty, and I've come to appreciate it more than I ever imagined I might. I'm just drifting off when I think I hear a soft tap on my door. I sit up and respond, yes, what is it? In a loud whisper. I'm convinced I can sense a presence outside in the passageway, but there's no response. Who's there? I ask a bit louder, and for a beat, I think I can hear soft footsteps gliding quickly away. By the time I get up and open the door to peer out, there's no sign of anyone. The hallway is quiet and unoccupied. It was just your imagination, I tell myself, but I'm unnerved. I close the door and secure it with the simple hardware hook at its frame, then cross the room to close and latch the window. I take a quick look out into the night sky as I shut it and see two remarkable sights. 
The first is another shooting star blasting beyond the horizon in almost the exact same place Arden and I saw the meteors the night Fallon March arrived. The second is a single human silhouette, barely highlighted by the flash of the falling meteor, speed-walking the ridge behind residential that suddenly disappears in the darkness. You're sure you weren't dreaming all this? Wenda asks the next morning at breakfast when I tell her about the strange sight. Nobody walks that ridge at night. It's not safe. I wasn't dreaming, I say. I'm on light duty today, so I'll have to be on call, but I'm going up there to see if I can find some clues. Clues about what? Arden asks as he walks up behind us, his coffee mug in his hand. I find myself reflexively deflecting his inquiry instead of answering it. Oh, uh, nothing. I thought I heard something out behind the pod last night, I say, catching Wendell's look as I speak. I'm going to see if anything is amiss. What do you think you heard, he asks. Our windows face the same way, and I didn't hear anything. But then I'm sharing a room with a champion snorer, so I've kind of learned not to hear anything. Nothing major, just some sound. Something like... I'm on the verge of saying the word when a light bulb goes off and I'm stunned by the realization. I was envisioning the ocean. The sound I was hearing wasn't the ocean, of course. But it sounded very much like the ocean because it was so rhythmic and steady. And only one other thing has that particular rhythm. Like what? Arden prompts. Like some kind of animals prowling around, I invent on the spot. I wonder if something's trying to get into our food storage. Wenda's expression is incredulous, but Arden doesn't seem to notice. Oh, he says absently, already turning away from us and heading for his favorite chair by the fireplace. Yeah, that could be a problem. I'll get it taken care of, I say in a voice that's far too loud and entirely unnecessary since he's no longer paying any attention to us at all, instead seating himself across from and starting an intense conversation with Darrow. Wendy gives me a look and takes me by the elbow, steering me into the empty kitchen. What is going on, she asks, looking at me hard. Did I just hear you invent a pack of wild animals intent on eating our tomatoes in order to avoid telling the truth to a man you swore to me that you would trust with your life? I don't have a comeback for her, or an explanation, even for myself. That appears to be what happened, I say, wincing. You heard somebody at your door, then you saw somebody up on the ridge, and you didn't want to tell Arden about it. Digging, I interject. What? Digging. I wasn't lying when I told Arden I heard something. I heard digging last night out behind the pod, specifically someone digging with a shovel. I hadn't realized it before now, but I'm sure that's what I was hearing. And you think this digging is suspect, that Arden is somehow implicated in this digging, or in the presence outside your room, or the mysterious Ridgewalker? No, not at all. I mean, maybe. I, I mean, I don't know. Wenda continues to give me a long level stare until I feel like I've shrunk to approximately three feet in height and have the maturity of a four-year-old. I look at the floor, feeling thoroughly chagrined. There's only one thing to do, she says, taking a cup of coffee from the tray Holly's carrying past us and pressing it into my hand. After breakfast, we're going to go exploring, just the two of us. And while we look for clues, you're going to tell me what's going on in that head of yours because I am failing to understand you. I take a sip of the coffee and look at her guiltily. I'm failing to understand me too, I say. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.